This episode of the American Farriers Journal podcast is brought to you by American Equus. American Equus set out to create a new generation of products for today's farriers, understanding that achieving the perfect shoeing is a combination of knowledge, skill, and the right tools. American Equus crafts high-performance CNC machined aluminum horseshoes for every discipline. In addition, they hand-fabricate robust and easy-to-use farrier shoeing carts that are completely customizable. To learn more about American Equus and to see their complete monoblock sport horseshoes, visit AmericanEquus.com today and enter code JOURNAL for 10% off your first purchase. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. Today, farriers have tremendous educational opportunities. You have large events like our International Hope Care Summit, regional events, and even your local supply shop can have a helpful clinic. One of the great things about these events is the farriers that you'll run into. I'm fortunate enough to travel to many of these events throughout the year. And at nearly every clinic or supply shop open house that I go to, I'm lucky enough to run into Dick Fungi. A Hall of Fame farrier is a mainstay at hoof care events throughout the U.S. as he comes representing Stonewell bodies. But he seems to spend more time advising farriers on various aspects of horseshoeing while he's there. He's equally insightful, skillful, and helpful. In this podcast, Dick shares some of the stories and knowledge he's developed throughout his years. He begins by telling us how he got into horseshoeing. My great-great-grandfather was the head blacksmith of Sarah Plantation in Montague, Louisiana. He had two sons who were both trained to be blacksmiths, neither one of them liked it. Uh, my grandfather was a stickler for education, and he got himself education. He became the chief accountant and legal advisor to the plantation. Uh, my great uncle went on to become a farmer. Now, my grandfather had two sons, my dad and Uncle Libby. My dad's nickname was Smitty. That tells you a little bit something right. there. He was. He was raised in his grandfather's shock practice. My dad didn't particularly like it, so he became a butcher and went into the grocery business. My uncle went through the, the growing uh, technology, started as a blacksmith, then he became a welder and a machinist, and he retired as the head machinist for uh, South Coast Corporation, which was a big plantation. I learned the fundamentals of horseshoeing by watching my grandfather shoot his mules. He never owned a tractor. He had a buggy horse and he had mules. And I'd sit up on top of a barrel and watch him and that's how I got into it. By the time I got to being a teenager, guys of my generation all wanted to be cowboys. We watched the Western movies, we went to rodeos and what have you and we're roping calves and just playing cowboys. I had no intention of becoming a farrier, but what my buddies would do, because I knew how to nail a shoe on, they'd go to the feed store and buy shoes and a handful of nails and come over and I'd chew their horse for them, but nothing. (laughs) That was good when I was a teenager, but uh, didn't work well other than that. Uh, And at at that time, I had no intention to ever be a farrier. Mm -hmm. Uh, The reason for it is 
I heard horror tales about my great grandfather's alcoholism. But you have to remember, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was no ibuprofen. (laughs) There was none. Uh, they they feel pain with that. Of course, when he finally retired, he quit drinking at the same time. So we'll figure that out. But I kind of backed into horseshoeing. I was trying rodeo and trying training horses, and then I saw I, I really needed a job. So I went to work for the local sheriff's office. One of the guys I went to school with went to vet school. And he's one of them I used to shoot his horse. And he calls me one day and says, look, when you knock off, stop by my clinic. I have a sore-footed horse you need to shoot. I said, you know, I don't want to do that. He said, you're going to get paid for this one. Oh, my God. I lit up. <laughs> I was making $250 a month as a deputy sheriff. And this guy was going to pay me $18 to shoot his horse. And one thing led to another. And then I got into horseshoeing. And down in South Louisiana, I was sort of like on an island. We had a lot of horses there, but, you know, that's not the main thing down there. It wasn't until Johnny August introduced me to Lawrence Lenorti, who was a third-generation farrier in New Orleans, that the fire was really lit. And working with Lawrence was just off the charts. Back in that time, horseshoes didn't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you walked in a barn, they'd pick up their tools or they you know, turn it back to you. But Johnny August, he talked to me. And not only did he talk to me, he brought me and introduced me to someone who, in my opinion, was a master. And I did an apprenticeship with Lawrence. And that's when it caught on. I got the fire. I put myself through college, shooting horses. I'm a very practical person. And watching my dad being self-employed all his life, I knew the pitfalls of self-employment. So I put myself through college, shooting horses, and got out and became a school teacher. But I always shot horses on my leisure time, after school and on weekends. Well, I taught school for 20 years, but I always made more money shoeing horses than I ever did teaching school. So at the ripe old age of 42, I retired. I had my 20 years and I retired. (laughs) And I've never looked back. I've never looked back. It's it's sort of a backwards way of getting into it, but it works well for me, you know? I I talked to some of these full-time farriers, and they get real aggravated with the part-timers. But, you know, these part-timers might have a business plan that these full-timers don't have, you know? And I think you and I both agree having an insurance package that's going to follow you to the grave is worth a lot of money. You know, the little stipend I get from teaching 20 years of pay a truck note about it. Having that insurance package has been a blessing for me. Was that the top pitfall you you talked about? You know the lessons you learned from your father as as a self employed yeah. person. Is that the top one? Was was insurance? Yes, insurance. So that was the top thing. And back in the day when I was growing up, you went to see a doctor for five hours. 
I spent one day in the hospital with this prostate cancer, and the bill came out at about 45000 You know, if you don't have insurance, where do you go? Right. And, uh, you know, I spend most of my time with Stonewell, not selling Stonewell, but giving kids career advice. You know, to quote my granddad, when you're fooling with livestock, there's two things you don't need. One's a wristwatch and the other's a calendar. When work's to be done, you do it. You don't worry about what time it is or what day it is. You get it done. And when you price out your work, take into consideration what you would be getting if you were working for someone else. So for every foot you pick up, a portion has to go towards insurance. A portion has to go towards retirement. A portion has to go to running your household. I mean, you fold that money, that's not all profit. Very little of it is profit. You have overhead that you've got to cover. You've got your truck. You've got your equipment. You've got your inventory. Well, all that stuff I knew I could manage. But the insurance thing was the thing that scared me the most. That is something more unforeseen happened to me. How could I survive? Because being self-employed, you're not bent over. You're not making any money. Right. And this is something I had to consider. I was lucky enough that two good friends of mine in the ferry profession had about the same outlook I did. One was Jeff Rodriguez, and the other one was Eric Nygaard. Well, look at what happened to poor Jeff. Mm-hmm. Look at what happened to Eric. Thank God we had a business plan, if you will. Something for a rainy day. We didn't spend everything we made. And that, that to me, is a big thing. You know, like, you know, yeah, as the wife says, not the cost of living, it's the cost of living high. For example, look at Shunri. If you get a good one, you're going to have 20000 involved in it. But you're going to be pulling it with a $40,000 truck. That truck's going to wear out in four or five years, and you've got to get another truck. That rig's still going with you. Spend your money wisely. You know, when you buy tools, buy tools wisely. When you buy your supplies, buy them wisely. You know, I've been in a fair supply house, and guy comes in, he wants two pairs of this, two pairs of that. You paying premium then. Why not, if you're going to use them, buy them by the box. Buy your nails by the case. Save any bit of money you can. And uh, I've observed that the equine population really took a dip in the last 18 years. It really has. And so there are more of us out there trying to struggle and make a living. And you got to think about that. Now, I see the economy is recovering now, and I suddenly see a boost in my particular area, but I don't know if that's nationwide. You know, I don't know if it's nationwide. Uh, yeah. Well, let me let me ask you then, you know, because it's true, the economy is doing better, but it doesn't necessarily mean the horse population is going to recover. So, you know, you're entering here as a farrier, you're a farrier with 10, 20 years under your belt. Looking Mm -hmm. back at your career, 
what did you do to best distinguish yourself, you know, to make sure that you were the type of farrier that clients wanted to hire? Well, I listened to a lot of good advice from successful people. Bruce Daniels, Myron McLean, so on and so forth, Dennis Manning. But the thing I based my success on was my curiosity and my willingness to try new things and learn. Uh, I took time out at no pay to go work with some of the best they had, just to watch. Some of them let me work, others didn't let me do anything but speak the floor. But I picked up education. Uh, I was introduced to the American Friars Association by Lawrence, Lawrence from Nordy. And then from there, I found out we had a local association, which I knew nothing about, which was the Southern Farriers Association. Well, I got involved with these guys, and Jesus, my learning was something leaps and bounds, because I was no longer living in this bubble. I was rubbing shoulders with all kinds of different people who had all kinds of different ideas. And, you know, later on in my career, I had a blessing happen to me. I got contracted to the LSU system doing a horses for uh, Louisiana State University. Well, one of the duties I had were to take care of the donated horses. They have an outfit called the Central Station that collects all these animals. And then they dole them out to the different uh, disciplines that need them. All these horses were donated. Guess what? They were all crippled. So I could go to a, a clinic and a guy would explain the use of the hard bar suit. Or well, no problem. I got a founded horse out there. I can go try it. Or, you know, a rock or two. Oh, yeah, I got one out there. I could go try it. You can try this stuff when you're paying customers. You, you know, you, you don't experiment mm-hmm. on a show horse. But I could sure experiment on these horses. Well, Got to bounce around doing that. Then one of the vets from the vet school found out what I was doing and asked if he could come out and play. And he'd bring an x-ray machine. Oh, my God. That was heaven. Because <laughs> I could trim a horse. He could x-ray it before. I trim it. And then he'd x-ray it after. And we'd take joint spaces and angles and all this stuff. God, that was like I was in heaven. And the best part of the school was paying me to do it. Right. <laughs> Uh, of course, I'd have done it for free, just to learn what I learned. Yeah, how common? How common was it for a farrier to to have that kind of access to a radiograph machine at that that time? Well, at that time it was impossible. Yeah. You know, uh, you had at that time you had I think three private practice vets that certainly wasn't going to do the X-raying for you, and just the ability to have that. It was wonderful, but it was a learning thing for the vet, and it was a learning thing for me. And we had a grand time, did it for years, you know. And I saw a little sign the other day, the hard to climb the ladder of success with your hands in your pockets. Well, <laughs> that is true. you got to get dirty. If you want to learn this business, you've got to get dirty, and you've got to be on a bunch of animals. And, uh, no, I have truly been blessed in my career. I truly have been. Mm. Yeah. And 
through the AFA and through the SFA, I have built up uh, a nucleus of people that if I run into something I've never seen before, I bet you I can find a phone number in my phone for someone who has seen it and help me walk through it. You know, uh, at the ripe old age of 73, I saw a horse a week or so ago with a boy on uh, a FaceTime on a telephone. <laughs> he got in a bind with a horse and he didn't know how to handle it. So we literally shot the horse on the telephone. How did that work? It worked out pretty good. Yeah, it worked out pretty good. The horse walked off sound. That was the big problem. What was the process? Did he just did he he use the camera to show you what he was seeing with the horse, and you gave your reply? Exactly. He showed me a a profile of the foot. His angle was good, and everything was good. But when he picked up the solar surface of the foot, I could see the bars were trapped. So I just got him to trim the bars out. And the horse went instantly sound. It was just a case of pressure. Mm-hmm. But he didn't see it. But he's been chewing horses, what, two years. I shot horses well over 50 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, you know, a lot of these young boys want to blow us old guys off. But, you know, we might have learned something along the way. Right. I know you, you're you always giving of your time, like you mentioned before. I, I see you at so many events there with, with a Stonewell rig, mm-hmm. but I, I find mm-hmm. you more often than not giving advice and probably telling better stories than advice at times. <laughs> uh, but, uh, they say I. Yeah. Uh, what, what's a common mistake you're seeing a lot of young guys making or, or even guys who have a few years in that, that could be easily turned around? They're not paying enough attention to the heel of the foot. They're not, the, the bar is a part of the sport system of a horse. Okay, it's, it's a continuation of the wall. And if you don't pay attention to it and keep it upright, the, the bar starts to bend. Then when it starts to bend, it can start to go back into the foot and you're gonna have a heel sore horse. Uh, I got called in on a, a race horse. He was a fast dash. This horse is syndicated for $16 million, and he was walking on the tips of his toes on his back feet. The vets thought it was a disease process. They did everything they could. No disease process. They called me in. Well, we had to nerve block the horse so we'd get his foot up. Once I got the foot up to where I could look at it, I told my predecessor, I want you to take you pull off and slide it under that bar right there. I said, just apply right pressure to it. When I tell you, I want you to just pop it like you're pulling the shoe off. And when he did, the blood squirted. Mm. The bar curled under and was growing back into the frog on both hind feet. Well, in a week, he was back to breathing matters. He could walk again. But the owner had to admit that he was a handful on his back end. And because he was syndicated for so much money, they were very reluctant to sedate him. Well, the poor farrier that was working on him, he was getting the heck kicked out of him all the time. He just got in and out of that horse as fast as he could. So now, every once in a while, he give him a little crank and get him trimmed correctly. The horse is doing fine. He's doing fine. 
And, you know, when you, when you got a stud horse that's booked to 100 mares at $10,000 a mare, you've got to be able to collect him. And if he can't know his dummy, you're not collecting. Or it'd be very difficult to. And so, you know, but I see this kind of stuff, talking to kids, and, you know, they're all about the apparatus to shoot. It's not the apparatus, it's the trim. The trim is what's important. You can put any shoe on if the trim is correct. But some shoes work a little better than others, I'll grant you that. But in all of my years working on cripples, I found the best thing to help them was a good flat trim. Line up that bone column in a flat shoe and give them time to heal. You've got to give them sufficient time to heal. Uh, that's why I never did like shooting on a racetrack. Is I don't care if you can walk Monday, can I race on Sunday? Right. And I never was into that. I never was into it. Uh, what advice do you have for that when you, you know, like you said, I think so many horses can be helped by simply time off and, and the trim, mm-hmm. but you, you're trying to compete against you know, the trainer or the owner, somebody trying to make money on a horse, they want it back in action. Yeah. What What did you find when, when you had that, I guess, difference of opinion, well, what would you do to, to overcome it? Well, I'll be honest with you. I can be kind of blunt at times, okay? <laughs> and sometimes I've had to get pretty blunt with clients. Uh, you know, a horse is caught in a triangle. He's in the center of it. And on one point, you got the owner. On another point, you got the trainer. On another point, you got the veterinarian. And the poor horse is stuck in the middle. Who's representing the horse? And you say, well, all three of those are coming from different areas. And you're getting great conflict. And I, in my younger days, I got some pretty raucous arguments with veterinarians, also trainers. But now with all this gray hair, they kind of leave me alone, you know. <laughs> they go curmudgeon and watch me, will snap the head off, you know. But be honest and truthful with these people and don't lead them down a path that you know is going to be unsuccessful from the beginning. One of the things that I find bad wrong in the ferry industry today is this push towards equine podiatry. Well, you take a veterinarian, and I can tell you, at the LSU vet school, a vet graduates with three clock hours, not semester hours, three clock hours on the foot. And the reason I know it is because I teach it. That's the only instruction they have on trimming and shoeing. And I do that in a three-hour class. How can you extrapolate that three hours of knowledge to somebody who's been shooting 20 years? But, you know, they come out and they want to write these prescriptions and what have you, and they don't totally understand what they're dealing with. And for a young trainer, that is rough. I mean, he needs that horse. He needs that income to support his family. And he's getting advice from people that really shouldn't be giving him advice. But who do you listen to? And, you know, I don't know. It it confuses me. Yeah, I I think that's the worst pickle in horseshoeing to be caught in is, especially it's the younger fairy who needs that income, but 
yeah. sometimes the owner is uh, more trusting of the veterinarian's opinion. In in many cases, yeah. uh, you know, I I laughed in the late nineties. The AEP did a uh, a survey on the West Coast of who was the most trusted advisor to amateurs. Well, believe it or not, the first one was the trainer. The second one was the groom. The third one was the guy at the feed store. The fourth one was the veterinarian. And the fifth one was the parrot. Well, they looked at these results and said, oh, man, that's the left coast. Let's do it on the east coast. Well, they repeated it. And it came out, the trainer was first, the groom second, the guy at the feed store third, the farrier fourth, and the vet fifth. <laughs> so, uh, you know... It's where these people are getting the information. And, you know, with social media being what it is, it's scary. You know, uh, I I look on Facebook and all these areas, pages and everything, and they're showing pictures of feet. There's only one thing wrong with them. Where's the rest of the horse? Mm-hmm. That's a nice-looking foot, nice-looking shoe, but does it fit the horse? You know, what's his leg confirmation? What's his body confirmation? Who is riding this horse? Is it an amateur or a pro? All these things come into play. And, you know, you you got to consider who's in the saddle on these animals. Uh, I shot for uh, a doctor's wife. She was a little bitty old woman, barely five foot tall. And she had a 17-hand warm blood. And I'm shooting the horse one day, and she starts just pops out crying. And I said, well, what's wrong? She says, I don't want to take my lesson this afternoon. I said, well, why? She says, well, the trainer just yells at me and engages back into the horse and used more leg. And she says, I don't have any legs. So I said, yeah. I said, you want me to fix that? She says, how? I said, I'll see you, sir. I went to my truck. I got a set of Arabian toe weights. Made hind shoes out of them. Put these hind shoes on that. There he's still away from the time in, and I took the steel off his front, and I put a room in. Nine o'clock that night, the trainer called, and she said, what in the heck did you do that for? <laughs> what are you talking about? She said, Pam came riding in the arena with this horse, and he is marching just like bulldog drum. That back end is engaged, and he's just pushing out. She said, I got so excited. I told her to get off the horse and let me get on him. She said, I put some leg on him, and his back end outran his front, and he nearly sat down. I started laughing. I said, how tall are you? Just a six-foot-one? I said, yeah, most of that is leg. You don't need a horse set up that way. I didn't shoot a horse for you to ride. I shot a pan to ride. And she said, well, that doesn't work. I said, you said you saw it. It worked. You know, it's just common sense stuff like that. But... Well, I think it's so many, so many factors go into what the farrier needs to consider when trimming and shoeing the horse, you know, and that's probably a primary one, the rider uh, that gets overlooked. Oh, definitely. What, what, how long did yeah. it take you to, to develop an eye for that and really make that a priority? Well, I was one of the lucky guys that got to work alongside of Bruce Nackles. Mm-hmm. And Bruce was a taskmaster and every word out of his mouth was teaching and if anybody had the opportunity to work with 
guys like Bruce, Bud Dennis, Paul Lawrence, they ought to jump at it. Man. These guys forgot more than a lot of people learn in their whole career. And you know who to ask for what. If I want to know about motion of a leg, of all people, I'm going to a gated horse here. He has more knowledge about the motion of a leg than anybody. If I want to learn how to make, quote, corrective, I hate that word, uh, therapeutic shoes, I want to go work with a guy that works on a harness track. These guys are the forge meisters. They know how to make shoes that correct things, or not correct them, at least uh, relieve things. The correction is a bad, bad word. Uh, and I've had the opportunity to work with these guys. And like I say, I try to pay attention. You know, I find in doing some of these lectures and what have you that I did, young people don't know how to learn. And what do I mean when I say that? If I sit down and I'm, I've got somebody doing a clinic, whoever, I suspend all disbelief and everything that man tells me is the gospel. I don't mentally debate him while he's speaking. As far as I'm concerned, everything he says is true. Now, after he's completed his deal, I'll go sit in the corner and compare what he said to my experiences. That's how you learn. Mm -hmm. you, you know, and they're mentally debating you while you're trying to tell them something, you know? Yeah, uh, prevents you from digesting it. Yes, and... So if you're going to go in, I don't care who the speaker is, who's the clinician, sit down, listen to them. Don't argue with them while they're trying to make their presentation. Now, after they make their presentation, go back and compare what they said to what you've seen in the field. And how much of this is applicable to you and the type of shooting you do. Yeah, and I remember we've had this conversation before, and uh, you, you're, you're going about the same pathway, and then you told me, and sometimes it's just good to learn what not to do. Yeah, you can learn something from the worst guy in the world. You learn what not to do. Right. Uh, you know, the, the, the very first quote clinic I ever went to was put on, they had Jack Reynolds, the dean of the racetrack players. Now, at this time in my career, I'm doing backyard horses, ranch horses, rodeo horses, and they're talking about all these knockdowns, knockups, Z-bars, and all this stuff. I just zoomed in on the moon. I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. So when we all went out to do the hands-on, I'm just sitting on the tailgate of my truck. And Mr. Jack comes up to me and says, are you going to unload your stuff? I said, no, sir. I said, I don't know what y'all are talking about. And I told him the type of shooting I did. He said, well, why don't you let me teach you something that can make you some money tomorrow? Take out your handle and get some shoes out and handle. And he spent the most of the afternoon showing me how to put my eye above my handle to direct my hammer blows so I wasn't just constantly beating on the shoe. I made thousands of dollars off of that clinic. Mm -hmm. So my arms, you know... These guys will help you. It's not the old days. These guys will help you. You know? Yeah, you know. yeah it's getting over that shyness. And, and, you know, you were lucky that Jack Jack approached you. 
Yeah, he did because he's wondering what I was sitting there for. I mean, why everybody else is working. <laughs> right. Why is this guy sitting on the tailgate of a truck looking like he's lost? And so he just walked up and said, hey, man, what's going on? Why are you not working? You know? And that's when I found out from Dak that these real good guys, oh, man, look, show them a little respect. They'll help you to no end. You know, to no end. And did I go on to become a racetrack player? No, not really. I didn't like that. I didn't like the racetrack. But I think I was a pretty successful horseshoe. Yeah. Uh, at least I convinced a lot of people I was, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Let me uh, take you back to something you said earlier about you, you find a lot of farriers today are more interested in the apparatus versus the trim. Was that mm-hmm. that that was something you saw change over your career and or what well, definitely what sparked that or why did the shoe become or what they're gonna glue or nail on the foot become more important than the trim? Well I think this started when you started having the laminitis symposium and then you started having these found experts and you had these gimmick guys, all right? You know, uh, we have a vet in this country that can cure anything from that noise to hemorrhoids with a rocker shoe. That's his prescription, it's a rocker shoe. Well, uh, uh, that doesn't make sense to me. First of all, you take the purchase away from the horse, okay? Now, if you're going to keep him in a stall with a hard floor where it does actually rock, yeah. Uh, to give you an example, years ago when I was doing a lot of rodeo horses, calf horses are the worst. They get in the box and they kind of jumping around and they step on each other, on their belts and what have you, and they're pulling shoes and what have you. I learned, well, not even learn it. Someone told me about it. Lawrence Lenardi told me about it. He said, put a little belly in your shoe and then trim the foot accordingly. I said, what What am I going to do there? He said, well, he'll get his front feet out from in front of him where they belong, and he's only going to be running 50, 60 feet. He said, you're not going to hurt him, and he's going to quit putting shit and pulling shoes. Well, by God, I did that. It worked like a charm. And horses that were having problems on their front end, that, you know, flexor problems, put a little belly in that shoe. But we used to do that on the handle. Now you buy them. You know, you buy them. You know, when, when I started sh- shooting horses back in the 60s, you had the Diamond Bronco, and you had a multi-product shoe that was made in Japan. And it, sometimes you could find old Phoenix shoes at real old hardware stores. But that's what we had to deal with. But now you can buy a shoe for any purpose you want. You know? Uh, I'm a, a big believer because I do so many hunters and, and jumpers or have done. Uh, I love lateral supports on the back end of our horse. It gives them a better platform. It gives them a wider stance. It makes them travel a little bit wider, and it reduces the stress on their hocks. And I tell you what, you can go buy those at the store. We used to make them, you know, but you can buy those at the store. And a lot of the craftsmanship, I'm not talking about WCD guys. These guys 
mid-Georgia majors. I'm talking about the pumpkin pool horse here going down the road trying to feed his family. He's losing some of the skill that he needs how to modify his sheep. You know, uh, in the AFA certification, I think the shoe board is the biggest downfall to all the candidates. Because two men think is close is good enough. Well, it's not. It's not good enough. You've got to make that shoe to fit a pattern that can be nailed on the horse and be functional. You know, you're just not extending heels and turning trailers and rocking those. It's got to fit a pattern. And so many people are intimidated by the certification program. That's one of the greatest learning experiences in the world, if you're willing to go through it. And I'm a big proponent of it. Yeah. And, you know, we should mention now, you're a past president of the AFA. What? How did yeah. certification benefit you most to your everyday work? It, it slowed me down to the point where I was paying attention to little bitty details, okay? Because I was trying to achieve the skill to pass this test. So I kind of stepped back and started really examining my feet real good because I was pretending, if you will, that I'm going to be judged on this thing. And then when I started fitting shoes, I started paying attention to the little bitty details sole pressure, you know, uh, sheared heel, you know, sprung heel, stuff like that. I, I paid attention to it because I was preparing myself for the certification. Well, sure enough, took my basic and passed it the first time. Well, then I had the fire lit, plus the fact that Jim Lindsay best. Scott Colson, hundred dollars. I didn't pass the test. That was also <laughs> incentive there. But the fire was lit. I, every day for two years, I got home, rain or shine, Christmas, New Year's didn't matter. I made a pair of shoes every afternoon. When I finally went up to take my test, I was ready. My tools were ready, and I sailed through it the first time. The average, I think it's something like five times to take tests in order to pass it. They're not preparing themselves. Mm -hmm. They're not preparing themselves. And, you know, I didn't, down in South Louisiana, I didn't have the luxury running next door to some master farragher or some competitor or what have you. A lot of this I had to teach myself. And, you know. Was that what? I remember when him, Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, quick question. Was it mm -hmm. that biting everything off in little chunks in your preparation? Uh, I have to imagine maybe when, when some folks struggle with certification, it's it's pretty daunting task, but it sounds like maybe what was successful for you was practicing a little bit at a time to not get overwhelmed. That's right. That's right. And then you compartmentalize everything you do, Okay. And you, and you come up with a, a procedure, a process that you're going to follow, and you go through it. A lot of that is muscle memory takes over, you know, and you're just not even thinking about it. You're just doing it because you did it enough. 
And, you know, and don't be shy about criticizing yourself. If you do a bum job, tell yourself, hey, I did a bum job. You know, all too often I see too many of these guys slapping themselves on the back on how great they did. And I look at the job and say, good God, I had to back up and get paid for that one. But, you know, don't let your ego get in the way of you learning things. None of us have all the answers. You know, it's just the way it is. Right. Uh, um, hmm. uh, let me see here. Um, th- going back to certification, um, we can, I guess let me let me back up a bit. Uh, let's talk again about your career and and uh, you mentioned some of the names: uh, Bruce, Lawrence, uh, Johnny, etc. Uh, yeah. How did you get more involved with the AFA, especially? you know, where you were in, in Southern Louisiana. Got, I got my truck and drove. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to leave home to go learn something. Uh, look, I've missed very few conventions and, uh, uh actually I've very, missed very few, uh, summits planned for it, saved for it, put a certain amount of money aside for your education. And is it hard? Yes, it's hard, but you can do it. You can do it. You know, uh, I think it was, uh, Ted Shanks over there in Hawaii. He told me that he'd start six months before convention telling his customers he wanted to go and ask them if they'd add five dollars to the price of a shoe job so he could get the money to go. And he said he was surprised at how many clients would add more because they want you to learn. They want you to give the animal the best care they can. Like I say, I I put a lot of emphasis on that. And, and you know, and you can't learn if you're not there. You've got to be there. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point about Ted. And did you always make an emphasis of that with your clients to let them know the, the investment you were making in, in their horses? Oh, yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Uh, every first of all, I did not shoe in jeans. I shot in khaki. All right, my clientele. Also, I always wore a collared shirt. On one side, it had the gentleman emblem, and on the other side, it had my name, Victor Gisugaya. I educated my clients about what I was doing to give better care to their horses. And I tell you, I can't tell you the support that I got from my clients. One of the best ones I ever shot in, I had a horse with contracted heels, and I tried every trick in the book and couldn't get any relief. And so I fell on us. It was just one thing more that we can try. So I said, I should put it in Chadwick's ranks. She said, we'll do it. I said, I can't. She said, why? I said, I don't know how. But I said, I do know somebody that does know how. Would you mind if he came over and charged your horse? And she looked at me in the eye and she says, for once I heard a horseshoe say he couldn't do something. <laughs> I said, well, you heard it because I've never used them. She says, bring him on. So matter of fact, it was Johnny August. And I called Johnny and I said, Johnny, would you come to Baton Rouge and shoot this horse for me? Explain what was going on. And I need to put Chadwick Springs in. 
He said, no, I'm not going to shoot a horse. You're going to shoot him, and I'm going to show you how to use him. And sure enough, he came over, and we shot the horse together. That customer told me, she says, as long as I have horses, you'll be my father. And I said, why? She says, he admitted you didn't know something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, truth is truth. Right. That's a great way to get into trouble is is to overstep and, and out of maybe, I guess, embarrassment that you don't know how to do something yeah. or worried how the client yeah. might look well, at you. Well, when you, you know, first of all, if you can do it, it ain't bragging. But make sure you can do it before you see you do. You know, I've got an apprentice that's been with me now going on five years. And I tell you what, he's a hell of a lot more humble today than he was five years ago when he got in my truck. Because mm-hmm. I don't cut slack. <laughs> and I call it the way I see it, you know. And uh, I didn't have to make him pull too many shoes off a foot and redo it until he started paying attention to me. The buck stops with me. Whether I'm doing the work or not, the buck still stops with me because I'm the one who brought him into that barn. And I'm telling you. It can get ticked. Right. You know, it can get ticked. Yeah. Uh, to me, apprenticeship is the real way to learn. You just got to be out there with somebody that knows what they're doing and just work. That's the way to learn. Yeah. How do uh, you go out, so let's say if there's some young folks listening, if you're interested in finding the right apprentice for you, what advice do you have? Well... I want somebody, first of all, that's physically able to do the job, all right? Uh, and that doesn't mean they have to be muscle-bound or what have you. I mean, they just have to be physically fit to do the job. The second thing I look for is someone that listens more than they talk and pays attention. I also want someone to know when to ask questions, and that's not in front of the client. You see something I did and you don't understand it, wait till we get in the truck. And I'll explain why I did that, okay? And then it's work ethic. You know, you can't even do bad work if you don't show up. Right. I mean, you, you got you got to be on the on the spot. You know, uh, I had a farrier call me yesterday, wanting to know if he'd done the right thing. He fired an apprentice. He sent the guy to work on the horse, and he well warned the guy that this horse is trying to have a wormy. He'll move around in the cross tide. So he sent him over there to go pull the shoes off while he was working at the anvil. And lo and behold, the apprentice goes up there holding the grass like a knife and just dabs the horse in the ribs. Well, the horse went around and kicked the kid. He says, I can't have that. He says, I fired him. I said, you're right. You can't have that. Thank God you saw it. So what if the trainer had seen that? Guess who was going to get fired? You. Because you brought that kid into that barn. You know, the buck stops, the buck stops with the journeyman, you know, uh, June 1st of 2015, I shot my last horse by myself, start to finish, because that officially made 50 years I'd been in the business, professionally. Mm-hmm. I have not shot a horse by myself since then, and the owners don't care as long as I'm there. That's all they care about. If I'm there and I nod my head and say, that's good, well, that's good with them. But, I, well, the few barns I have left, I've been in over 20 years in, in, in them. So, you know, they basically know what they get. Uh, yeah. 
I, I'd like to be able to give something back to this trade that's been so good to me. That's why I, I like to take time with young people, you know, try to help them. Yeah. Did yeah. it, uh, I have to imagine there is a big part of you being a teacher that, that helped you really like the education side of being a horseshoer. Yes. Yep. That's a big part of it. It's a big part of it. It is, it's the pleasure you get when you see the little light come on on top of your head. And it is, you can tell when somebody just learned something, but just looking at them, you just see their whole demeanor changes when they finally understand what you're trying to tell them. And there's no feeling on earth like it. You know, people always say, well, the reason you gave up teaching was the kids. No, kids had nothing to do with it. It was the politics of the school system. You know, they wanted me to be a principal. I wanted to be a horseshoe. I was making more money in the afternoon than I would have if I was a principal of a school. Mm-hmm. And we all agreed on my part, and I guess it is. But, you know, I love the kids. I love working with young people. But, you know, you got to show me you want to learn. You know, that's, I couldn't run a show in school. I don't have patience for it anymore. But one-on-one, I can work with guys. And I do. And, you know, I just, I love this occupation. Hell, it ain't even an occupation. It's a lifestyle. Right. It's a lifestyle. It's, it's not an occupation in my book. And, and where else where else can you be exposed to the people that we're exposed to? You know, we shoot for all social strata and everything else. We get to meet some really great people. And it's, it's really wonderful. I love it. Yeah. Let me go back to something you were talking about earlier. Uh, we, we were discussing insurance and uh, bring up a point mm-hmm. to what we were talking about one time before uh, before we got on here. Um, I guess the other part of that, not just having a plan, but making sure you take care of yourself and you take rest. Uh, like you said, mm-hmm. you know, there was no ibuprofen back when your great-grandfather was shooing. How, how, how do you... I guess, how do you provide great service for your clients? How do you make yourself available without overdoing it? Don't overbook. You're not going to shoot every horse in the world. Don't get upset when you see another shooter in the barn that you're working in. You can't do them all. Know your limits. I never, ever shot over six horses a day. Actually, I did. I did 12 one day, and I paid for that dearly, and I'd never do it again. You know, Six shoe jobs, that's a day's work. Make sure you're charging enough for what you did where it is a day's work. All right? And being a, I'd rather be known as the best than the cheapest, if that makes any sense at all. Sure. And if I lost customers because of price, well, so be it. You know, that's something that never bothered me. But then again, money never bothered me. I was, I was doing what I loved, you know, and I was lucky enough to make a bunch of money out of that time. But circumstances also with a lot of too, you know, injury, infection, now there's a little deal with cancer. Mm-hmm. But you know what? I'm not a pauper. I'm not going to lose anything. I'm not going to lose my house. I'm not going to lose my truck because I plan, you know, to take care of myself. And, you know, Physically, stay fit and don't take too much time off. 
especially the older you get, you take three days off, take a long weekend and come back on Monday and get under a horse you've been hurt so bad it didn't fun. Plan your time off and stay active, stay moving. Those are all good points. I think uh, we really overdo it a lot of times. I guess I never considered that, the the idea of uh, not being away from it too much. No, no. Well, that's one of the best advice I ever got. I got that from Bruce Daniel. He said, don't ever take more than three days off from town, boys, or you're going to hurt. He said, you'll get away with it when you're young, but you're not going to get away with it when you get up in age. And he was so right. You know, I tell you what, I've often said on Wednesday, or actually a day of fake invention, yeah, I can do it on Wednesday. If I got out in the parking lot with a horse and charged some guys five hours a foot to pick them up, they'd take Because by Wednesday, they hurt because they've been in committee meetings and board meetings and all that kind of stuff. By Wednesday, you're hurting. And by the time you get home, you're really hurting. Same thing at the summit. If you got out there with a horse in the damn middle of the street, people would pay you $5 a foot to pick them up just to get the kinks out of them. And uh, no, don't take too much time off. It, it'll destroy you. It will end your career early. You talk about a plan. Uh, you know, plan could be secondary income, getting insurance. Uh, say somebody's listening, then they're they're kind of greeting each day. They know they got clients, but maybe they don't have a plan for it. Where where do you start? Like, what's a great place to start if you you don't have a plan for your future or even past the next week? Well, the first thing you got to do is take a realistic view of your expenses. What's it costing you to live? That's rent, everything, food, you name it. What do you need to make? All right? That is the baseline. Now, where do I want to be? You got to set gold. How much money do I want to make this year? You know, and you start setting your book to do that. Uh, you should give yourself a raise every year. But do it in increments. That's not going to run your customers off, okay? Save a portion of your income. You've got, you got to have a rainy day fund. You know, I've known so many, quote, famous horse years that were gypsies. They, they followed the show circuit and what have you that died as paupers. So they had no plans. They didn't save anything. And they made the big bucks. You know, they were shooting, shooting at all the big A shows and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. They, they had no plan. And when they died, people had to pool their money together to bury them. That's sad. You know, and, and you got to resign yourself. You cannot live the lifestyle of your clients. You know, you, you just can't. You're not going to make that kind of money. You know, uh, Look, I know some horseshoes that are wealthy. They're wealthy, but they were also frugal with their money. Mm-hmm. And they didn't waste it. You know, guys that own Stonewall get a little aggravated with me sometimes. They call me the anti-salesman salesman <laughs> because I talk people out of spending money on stuff they don't need. But, you know, when I lay my head on the pillow at night, I sleep real well, you know. I mean, it's nice to have a refrigerator in your rig and a microwave, but is that going to make you any money? It's not really. So why not have an ice test? <laughs> and when it breaks, <laughs> you throw it away and you get another one. 
you know, vanity gets a lot of people when they're putting the shoe and rig together. Yeah. But it doesn't make sense. What tips do you have for that when it's time to think about a new rig? Maybe you're you're accelerating your career, you're taking care of different clients for whatever reason, you're looking at a new uh, new body or a new trailer. What what things should you think about before you talk to, to Stonewell or one of the other dealers? Well, you you got to come up with a budget, okay? you got to take a realistic look at your income and come up with what you can actually afford. That trailer note or body note, in my opinion, should not be more than 10% of your monthly income. It shouldn't be. Uh, then you have to make the decision what kind of rig do you want. Do you want a truck body? Do you want a trailer? Do you want a pony sliding image? Well, then you got to look at your size. As short as I am, a slide-in cast and tub does me no good because I can't work on the side of the truck or my tall enough. And I have all that wasted space. So the answer to me would be a trailer or a truck body. Now, I shot out a truck body for years, and I loved it. Uh, I once attempted a cargo trailer, and that was a disaster. I swore I'd never pull another trailer. What did you like about that? Well, when you open the back of it, all your tools are scattered all over because it's been bouncing down the road. Your shoes all on the floor. You got nails everywhere. It's, you got to clean that up before you can even set up to do your work. Okay? Now, shooting out a camper, all right, one of these little camper shells, it takes you approximately 10 minutes to set up at a climb. It takes you at least 10 minutes to break down. That's 20 minutes to stop. The average ferry does about three stops a day. At the end of the day, he's wore out from lifting that handle, putting it in and out of the truck, and setting up and everything else. At the end of the day, he'll be fresh enough that he can chew an extra horse, which will pay you note. Mm-hmm. Or better than that, he can get home to his family all earlier. Because it, it, it takes no time to set up. You open three doors and plug it in the wall, and you're ready to go to work. You know? My back was injured, not from horses. It was from crawling in and out of trucks to get what I needed. <laughs> That's what broke me down. No, horses didn't do it. It was just having an inefficient rig. And hurt myself more times lifting animals than I ever did picking up a horse's foot. Yeah. At 8 o'clock in the morning, a 100-pound animal isn't very heavy. 5, 6 o'clock in the evening, that thing weighs a ton. And, yeah. and when you're short as I am, you got to get it way above belt level to get back into the truck you know so that's progressive you know it's sort of a progressive injury of just slowly over time you're just wearing yourself out mm-hmm. breaking yourself down well dan bradley and i compare ourselves to old cars <laughs> our parts are wearing out you know new replacements hip replacements is that another you know we like old cars you just got to change the parts in us you know <laughs> the engine still wants to run, but the transmission's slipping, and, you know, we just got to put new parts in. And thank God they do have the medical technology to keep a lot of us going for longer than maybe we should. <laughs> so I can promise you, if I can figure out a way to crawl under a horse more, I'd do that. But it's not the parts. Now, how are you feeling these days? 
I'm feeling great. I really am. Uh, you know, uh, I'm dealing with a few side effects of the treatment, but they they minor. They minor. You know, uh, it's, it's, I sure can't complain. Uh, I don't know why the good Lord smiles at me like he does, but he sure has. And uh, I feel so blessed. I feel like I've cheated death at least once for sure. And uh, I just just want to give back now, you know? And I had the opportunity. One door closed for me, another one opened. And, uh, you know, I'm taking care of business. You know, my business, I was 50 years in one area. I can't tell you how many horses came in and out and put me out of business. You know, none of them ever did and always made a good living because it just, I, I, looked, I looked at them as they were shut up dog my silly little dog I, I never looked at other farriers as competition there were other people that tried horses you know and I knew I wasn't going to get them all didn't want them all like I say part of my plan was never do more than six horses a day three before lunch three after lunch that's it uh, you can do 10, 15 cramps, but, you know, just hammering and everything, six is my limit. Then it went down to five, then to four, then to three. <laughs> Time does that to you. I'm not in a hurry. As Blumbach used to always tell me, it's to be seen than to be viewed. You know, I get a little long-winded, but I, 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 just, I just love this profession so much. I'd like to thank Dick for sharing his expertise with us and also thank American Equus for sponsoring this episode. And thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast. and You can get this automatically downloaded to your computer or your smartphone or however you choose to listen. Until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>